Shalom, this is Ahmed, a.k.a. Shomer Man, here with your Parsha GYS for Parsha Naso. Just out of Shavuot from this past weekend, and it was a wonderful double Shabbat, and what a blessing and um, just great time it was, really, just to have 48 hours just completely involved in Torah study and prayer and fellowship and just... Um, enjoying the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. Because as the sages say, with each Chag, with each Moed, with each festival, the Ruach HaKodesh is poured out. And namely, uh, during Sukkot uh, was when the prophet Yonah received his gift and his stature and position as a Navi of Yisrael. Uh, He became a prophet, basically, through observing the festivals. So, uh, if you're thinking that the festivals are outdated and that that's not a thing that you want to partake in, just remember, Hashem pours out a spirit during that festival. So if you want to be filled with the spirit and walk by the spirit, you might want to take a chance on the festivals and enter in to Hashem's holy days. All right, Baruch Hashem. So with that being said, let's get started with the Parsha GYS for Nasho. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'achar banu mikol hamim, ve'natan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Amen. Alright, so I'm going to go all the way back to Har Sinai. That's a long way back. Uh, specifically from the Or HaChaim. And um, he basically has a few things that he shared during this time that I really wanted to just kind of bring out uh, from Parsha Yitro. And uh, first, let me start with this. I thought this was interesting. Parsha Yitro 19. And he is going off on commentary on the phrase, if you will listen closely, uh, which is... uh, Shemot 19.5 So So if you will listen closely And now if you will listen closely to my voice Which by the way is followed up by Keep my commandments Mashiach says if you love me you will keep my commandments That means loving Mashiach Means listening to Hashem's voice So um, Because Mashiach is Hashem's voice Alright so Commentary says, Perhaps we can say that in stating that the Jewish people said, We will do and we will hear, which by the way is not a Sevenishma, it says the Torah intended for both interpretations to be true as follows. One interpretation, namely, the sages of the Gemara reflect the Sliga. That of the sages in the Gemara reflects the commitment of the righteous ones among them, for they agreed to fulfill both components of the Torah before hearing what they entailed. So that's one interpretation that they say is true. Then the second interpretation, which they say is also true, as far as the Torah, the Torah intends for both of these interpretations to be true. The second one is... It reflects the commitment of the rest of the nation. So now we have 
the righteous ones set apart and then we have the rest of the nation that's an interesting distinction so it says that the rest of the nation who did not agree to accept the oral Torah without knowing what it entailed this approach would seem to be correct for it goes without saying that typically the Jewish people are not all on the same level of righteousness well that's interesting it's like you're not on that level so you know uh, that's interesting so it keeps going it says therefore it is reasonable to assume that the degree of their commitment to accept the Torah varied now why did I start with that I started with that because it's like you have basically two kinds of people that are always talked about it, it's talked about that there is one who is righteous i.e. not in need of a doctor because they seek righteousness, righteousness they pursue it and they don't know anything different and then there is the Baal Shuvah the master of Teshuva, the one who knows how good sin is and have been there been in the depths and they walked in the depths notice I'm using past tense on everything this is not a person who is currently saying yeah I want to be a sinner so that I can one day repent that's that's inappropriate on so many levels that's what really trampling the blood of Mashiach is uh, or trampling grace underfoot is you know Mashiach's blood is grace you know the mitzvot are grace there are sanctification agents but uh, anyway uh, as well as atonement so this is all happening and you can't continue to say that I'm going to be a Baal Shuva and I'm going to make myself one a Baal Shuva doesn't have any uh, cognizance of Hashem's law of Hashem's kingdom and it is when they are informed of Hashem and of his Torah and of his ways and then they go oh my goodness I'm so sorry I want to confess I want to repent and I no longer do that again and I'm gonna walk this way now a Baal Shuva can also be a person who is uninformed of mitzvot even though they have claimed to have a relationship with Hashem which is most of our Christian converts because well even our Jewish converts who have converted to belief in Mashiach and still keep the mitzvot converting to Yeshua does not mean divorce the mitzvot divorce the Torah that would be antithetical to believing in Mashiach and converting anyway because conversion implies that you're going to take on the yoke of the kingdom which involved mitzvot so with all that being said you want to make sure that once you become aware of what you need to do that you start doing it and that you turn your back you turn your face away from that which is inappropriate so as as much as you can and with all that you have with all that you are you seek and you strive and you press towards the high mark that sounds really familiar not that I've attained it all but you know I strain and press towards the high mark some rabbi said that okay but anyway so we don't all accept the Torah with the same level of righteousness we all grow and that's the beauty of being in kingdom you know like all of us have the opportunity to grow and we don't look down on each other we pick each other up 
And one who looks down on someone, first of all, is breaking not only Torah, but also the ethics of the fathers, the pure Kavot. The teaching is you don't judge someone unless you've walked in their shoes. You know, so in order for you to be able to look down on someone, you need to know what that person is like and what they're going through, what their circumstances are. You know, because for me, I know what it was like growing up with practically not having a father, even though he was there and, you know, or, you know, like struggling, being poor, uh, not knowing, you know, how things are going to work out financially. And uh, that means making some very uh, stressful financial choices and life choices. I know what that's like. So if someone is struggling and they're entering into Torah and they're trying to do their best, I know exactly what that's like. So first of all, I would not look down on them from that aspect alone. But secondly, who has time to be looking down on people? Like if you see somebody struggling, you are seeing them because you can help them. You may not be able to financially support them, but financial support is not always the only way to help somebody. If someone is on the corner asking for money, you might want to ask them what they're asking for money for and how can you help them better or something like that. Because just throwing money around the place, you know, that's not good. You want to be efficient with your help, right? You know, if someone's struggling to lift a couch, you go on the other side of the couch and lift up the couch. You don't go, hey, here's $10 to lift that couch. So anyway, I digress, but I just want to encourage everybody that we're all on different levels and no matter what level you're on, you're on that level because you're inside of a complete tapestry that Hashem has woven within B'nai Yisrael and the only way that tapestry can be that beautiful is because it has those different levels in it and it's something to the aspect of when all of Yisrael walks in unity, I'm talking like Tehillim 133 type unity. All the branches are working together and it's beautiful. So be encouraging. Let the first thing that comes to your mind when you're encountered with the opportunity to want to look down on somebody, let the first thing to your mind and to your heart be wait, 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 how can I help them? What's going on? Take a step back, you know, um, think about this, you know, don't get upset with the person don't come down on them, you know, think favorably, lift them up, even dobbing for them right there. Hashem, I don't know what's going on. This is kind of weird to me. It's rubbing me the wrong way. Hashem, just help them. I don't know what their situation and their circumstances are. We're talking about Naso, right? So Naso means to lift up. And I just want to let you know that's part of lifting people up. So now gleanings from Shavuot, because, you know, we were talking about being at the foot of the mountain that, you know, it was a miraculous event. And one of the things that has been just kind of sticking out to me over the past couple of years is that it says the people saw the sounds And it was just like they saw what is normally heard and they heard what is normally seen, you know. And so it's just kind of like beautiful as far as the supernatural element to it, because really the complete merger of the heavens and the earth just took place right there on the mountain. So whatever came from that mountain was the fullness of that manifestation. So that means Mashiach Yeshua 
was there. That's right. Because as I read in Midrash, it says the sick were healed, the dead were raised, the lame were made to walk, and the blind had their sight, and the mute spoke, and that's what Mashiach did. He walked around like a miniature person version of the Mount Sinai, uh, Montan, get you some Torah incident, so, or event, I should say, which was Shavuot. So, with all that being said, the reason they saw the word of Hashem, the voice of Hashem, is because of this. This is commentary from the Or HaKaim on Shemot 20, verse 1. This guy has at least three or four pages, if not more, on verse 1. So I'm not going to count them for the sake of time here. But I just want to let you know, 20, verse 1, he goes off on like a five-page drop. And it's just like, how are you getting that much out of just that one verse? Which... Really, verse 2 is where all the good stuff is, you would think, because the Anoki Hashem, like I've written myself down and given it to you, I've given you the essence of my being in finite form for you to infinitely experience. Yeah, again, Mashiach Yeshua, right? But all that and not even getting into the fact that the first statement Hashem says, which is verse 2 of chapter 20, is all 10 of the mitzvot, namely the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. Like, even before all that, this is what the commentary is. First of all, it says that Hashem let the Jews hear them. Let, let them hear what? When Hashem spoke all the 10 mitzvot, okay, so he let them hear them. By the way, it says the ten mitzvot were uttered just like the first verse or the first chapter of Bereshit. So the utterance of Hashem that came forth with the giving of the Torah is the same utterance that came forth with the birth of creation. So the giving of the Torah and creation are exactly paralleled and the same things are going on. So really why you become a new creation and mashiach yeshua who is the embodiment of the torah now we see why we're a new creation because it's with a mighty utterance that we enter in to new life newness of life so it says therefore hashem when he let all the jews hear them they succeeded in hearing only two out of the ten mitzvot that's right they didn't hear all ten they only heard two. So now we got eight other mitzvot, you know, like new beginnings type mitzvot that were yet to be uttered by the mouth of Hashem. So upon our tachiyat hamitim, our resurrection from the dead, may we hear those other eight and put it all together. Because with the world to come, the olam haba, the yod, which is the ten, the letter that equals ten, that's what was used to create the Olam Haba. So, I'm saying Haba for the Incredible Talmud because he wanted to make sure we were pronouncing that word appropriately, you know. So, that's what we do right there, you know. Okay, anyway. So, when he let them hear these two, well, that's all they could hear. It says, namely, the first commandment, I am Hashem, your God. That Yeah, that's a commandment because that means something. If Hashem is your God, 
That means you have no other because Hashem doesn't have room to be uh, next to or beside or molded to another God. So, you know, it's basically if Hashem didn't say it, then you don't worship it. You know, like you don't grab a hold of it and cleave to it. Okay, so that's very important. I'm putting it to you like this way. I will put it to you like this. Mashiach says, your love for me should be greater than the love that you have for your mother or your father, your brother or your sister, even your own possessions. The love that you have for me should look like you hate all those things. So with Hashem being your God, it should be as if anything else is an idol to you. Now, with me saying that, realize don't get crazy and be like, yeah, work is an idol. I don't want to go to it. It's like, okay, no, go to work because Hashem said you have to work. And as Shoresh always says, our Shomer Groot, he always says, uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, that's that's what that's what that is. Plain and simple. And I'm like, okay, uh, he got that verse down. So, uh, but anyway, you have to go to work. But the thing is, how are you working? And as you are working, are you denying Hashem or are you glorifying Hashem? Are you, anything you do, are you glorifying Hashem or are you denying Hashem? I mean, that's really what that is. So anyway, with Hashem being your God, that's what it is. Then it says, there shall not be to you. This is the second commandment that they heard. Interestingly, they heard two commandments. And interestingly enough, Mashiach says that the greatest commandment is to love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I give you a new commandment. And this commandment is the second commandment, which is like the first commandment. So even Mashiach gives us two commandments. So like, it's really cool. But, you know, even though everything that him or his father says it's still all of the mitzvot. So it's not like, yeah, forget all the other 611 mitzvot or 610 mitzvot or 612 or, or whatever you want to do with that. Just, we need to take two. Okay, 13 minus two is uh, is 11. So, okay, that's where the 611 comes from. But anyway, continue to digress. It's going crazy over here. All right, so these two mitzvot are what they heard. Then he brings in, at that point, after the second mitzvah, their souls departed. As the verse states, Shir Hashirim 5, 6, my soul departed as he spoke. And it says the Gemara Shabbat 88b understands this verse as referring to the giving of the Torah at which Hashem spoke to the Jewish people and derives from here that after hearing his voice, their souls left them. The Gemara states there that Hashem brought them back to life with the dew by which the dead will be resurrected in the future era. Yeah, there, there's some get you some right there. All right, so took some dew to resurrect us after hearing his voice okay so their souls are departing with hashem giving forth these mitzvot and it says and they could not grasp any more of the commandments in this manner instead the remaining eight mitzvot were formed 
into flames of fire created by his voice, blessed be he. At that, or at the verse, or as the verse states, Tehillim 29.7, the voice of Adonai forms flames of fire. So the flames of fire that descended upon the room in Acts chapter 2 we see right here in Shemot 20, verse 1. Okay, so just to let you know, it's all the same. There's nothing new that happened in the, in the story of Acts, okay? So there's no birthing of a church. There's no birthing of Christianity. There's no birthing of any of that. And I have to say that even as harsh or as awkward and as nails on a chalkboard as that may sound, that's the truth and so we have to be about truth because when Mashiach returns and he gets here the the little lovely lamb is going to be a fiery lion and it's time for judgment so all of us including myself need to be ready for that because he says Matthew 7 you know many will come to me in that day and say Lord Lord Adonai Adonai they will say Hashem, Hashem, like trying to evoke the 13 attributes, right? Because it says anybody who quotes Hashem, Hashem, like, and they go down the list of the attributes as given in Shemot and Parashat Kitisa, that they will be given atonement. But Mashiach is like, that won't even work for you when I return because it's time. Like, no more Shuva, no more converts, you know, this is it. So, anyway... We have to make sure that we are walking in the true light and not deviating from it. So, because, you know, at that time, there will be no, no cushions, no pillows, no rocking yourself to sleep. Because when you go to sleep, that time, you know, it'll be for real. So, anyway. Alright. So, it says that the eight are formed into flames of fire. Now, check this out. They remained arranged on Har Sinai until the souls of the Jewish people were returned to them through the dew of revivification. So here we see fire and water working together again. It's just like the fire is going to hold off. Here goes a little water. Now that the water's woke them up, here comes the fire. You know, and Yochanan says that I mikvah you and immerse you in the mikvah of water, which is teshuva. But the one who comes after me is going to mikvah you with fire and water, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, which we now know, according to Jewish literature, that the Ruach HaKodesh is the Torah, namely the Sapphire Tablets. So anyway, the Sapphire Tablets have a form of fire that are coming forth here. And obviously, 40 days later, they're going to come down the mountain and, uh, you know, they had to get broken before reaching the camp because the people were deviating from Hashem. Not good. Can't give a tour to that because then they'd be stuck in that form and eternal uh, not goodness. Like in an eternal not get you some, don't get you some, right? So, anyway, the fire and water is happening here. Here's your Teshuva and Mashiach right here. So, it says that once they were revived, then those commandments, which were essentially the sounds that went forth from the Mighty One, blessed is He, 
but we're now in the more mundane form of fire and communicated themselves to each of the Jews. So that uh, is pretty crazy. So we got the forms of fire, which are the tongues, by the way, the fiery tongues. Those are the mitzvot. So if you're speaking in tongues and it's anti-mitzvot, might want to check which fire because there's a strange fire and there's a Shem's fire okay now I'm going to skip to the next page here because you know all this is going on right so it's talking about that Moshe was the one who gave them the other eight which begs the question how did Moshe give the other eight if it's really the fire that's given that so let me go ahead and just read that all right now, although the sages of blessed memory said in Makot 23b and 24a that it was Moshe and not angels. Oh, I forgot <laughs> the forms of fire that were teaching the mitzvot that were sitting on the mountain I've just gone on about. Those are also called angels, i.e. seraphim, fiery ministers. So the fiery ministers are the voice of Hashem. And these are the mitzvot, which is the combined uh, echadness of Mashiach, because he is the Torah. So, um, but anyway, it says that it was Moshe, not the angels, who conveyed the remaining mitzvot to the Yehudim, which are Jews. It, or it is possible that both are true. I love this. This is great. It's like, yeah, they're angels, but yeah, it's Moshe. You know, that's why it's talking about, uh, this is Hebrews, which I'm terribly quoting, but paraphrasing that, you know, Mashiach is the one who is above the angels, you know, and Or Hakim back in Parsha Mishpatim was talking about there is one angel who's not really an angel, but he's like, not even between Hashem and the angels, but like, he's an angel. And so, like, he's a great exalted one who is the unification of the name of Hashem. And, like, yeah, this is Parsha Mishpatim talking about Memtet. So, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to bring that down to show you a picture of a type and shadow that Moshe is for being Mashiach. You know, Mashiach Yeshua, who is considered to be a culmination of the flames that are giving forth the other eight mitzvot. So anyway, it says Moshe had the strength to hear all 10 mitzvot. So he was definitely on a level, on a whole nother level. And then it says when they were uttered by Hashem. So he was able to hear all 10. So he was just like, yeah, keep talking, Hashem. This is great. Namely, on his left and on his right, everybody's just like falling out and just dying and being resurrected. And he's just like, yeah, Baruch Hashem, Amen, come on. You know, so that's uh that's intense. So for anybody who's really doubting Moshe, I mean, there's some accolade right there for you, right there, right there. Okay, it says, and thus, when the heavenly sounds came to speak to the Yehudim and teach the remaining mitzvot, the voice of Moshe also spoke to the Yehudim together with them. And see, this is how we view Mashiach Yeshua as the voice of Hashem correlating with the Ruach HaKodesh and the Torah. 
Like he's speaking these words in Echad. You know, there's in the Sheen, which by the way is the stamp of Hashem's name, which represents Shaddai, but also seems to represent Memtet, which we know Mashiach is Memtet. So really it's a Sheen, which is Shalom, ultimately. Shalom means the um, the rectification of a relationship between two distinguished parties by a third party. So we can kind of see this happening right here to where to connect the people with Hashem to receive life. It is the voice of Hashem. It is the voice of the Redeemer. It is the voice of the Spirit. It's the voice of the Torah. So if you're following Messiah and wondering why do we need Torah, if you're following the Torah and wondering why do you need Mashiach, well, I would just show you the letter Sheen and say, break this letter up and what do you have? Because, you know, can't have Shalom if it's broken. Unless the Shalom is broken to bring Shalom, which did happen with Mashiach's crucifixion. But... The fact is, is that there ultimately has to be the rectification of bringing everything back together. This is why we say the Shema with the four corners of the Talit in one hand. Okay, that's crucial because how are you going to say gather in all the exiles if there's no place to gather them into or if you left out a group? That would by default be not gathering in. Just the same way with this. If you don't have one piece... You're going to have a problem. If you take off the lug nuts of your car on one wheel, how far down the road are you going to get? Yeah, you can drive. I wouldn't advise it. So that's the same thing. If you take out any piece of the Echad of Hashem, that's a problem. And like I tell anyone who I share Kabbalah with, the, the Kabbalah gets dangerous when you start taking Sephiroth and isolating them out and studying just that one aspect and not really keeping it unified with the rest of them. Namely, how we did the Omer count, how we said, you know, this week, uh, may the blemish that I've caused in the Sephirah, Yesod, Shev, Chesed, you know, or anything like that, like it's always connected. It's not just like Yesod and may I focus on this and meditate and chant and do all this stuff. Like when you start getting into that, that's where the problems come in. So, you want to steer clear from that and keep everything echad because Hashem is echad. He cannot be separated out. So, don't do it. Okay. So, anyway, a mitzvah talking here with Moshe. And it says that perhaps the Torah is alluding to this from Shemot 1919. Moshe would speak and God would respond to him with a voice. Footnote, the verse may be interpreted as referring to Moshe's delivery of the remaining eight mitzvot to the Jewish people as follows. Moshe would speak to the Yehudim. God would respond to him with a voice, meaning Hashem responded to, i.e. assisted Moshe by having the heavenly sounds that had already gone forth from his mouth teach the Jews the remaining eight mitzvot together with him. I.e., I only speak what I hear my father in Hashemayim speak. And apart from my father, I can do nothing. I mean, this is all, everything that Mashiach showed us. So, that's just uh, incredible. 
But here's what's even more incredible, at least what I thought was. It says this about the word Lemur, which is the last verse and last word in verse one of chapter 20 of Shemot. It says, according to this, the difficulty that which our verse states Lemur is resolved. When it says God spoke all these statements, it means he said them in his great might as indicated by the name Elohim, which again, in Bereshit, it uses Elohim, the one who did the creating, okay? So then it says that he spoke all 10 mitzvot in one utterance, as explained above, and when it states to say, which is lemor, it means he also created a power in the commandments themselves, to say the following words to the Yehudim, should the need arise, as indeed occurred, that when the Yehudim were incapable of hearing all the mitzvot from the mouth of the Almighty, the mitzvot themselves spoke to them, as we have written. And then the last thing I wanted to say is that, um, I mean, that is just ridiculous because you know Mashiach being our helper the Ruach being our helper all that you know empowering us giving us the ability to connect with Hashem I mean that's just all right so they wanted to do a, a, a Shir Hashirim Rabbah and a Zohar drop and they said you will find that the sages of blessed memory said that each and every mitzvah would stand before each and every Jew so we know there was over like millions of Jews there and for each Jew to have his own mitzvah, but it was really the voice of Hashem. I mean, that's duplication and copies at its finest, you know, like, but it's all Hashem and it's every single mitzvah for every single person. So that's over, over a million 613s that are handed out. And this is probably why they say there are 613 uh, interpretations of each of the letters of Torah. So, yeah, or 613,000. That's in the Orchard of Delights. That's, I mean, there's lots of interpretations of interpretations. So, that's where that would come from because we see it right there. But anyway, this is what I wanted to say. Each and every mitzvah would stand before each and every Yehudi and say to him, Do you accept me upon yourself? Like, would you receive me as your crown? And then it says, He would answer it, Yes. Which is the word, Chain. And then, or Ken. And then it would say, Whereupon the mitzvah would hug and kiss him, and then ascend and become a crown on his head. I love this. It says, the footnote, according to Or HaKaim's understanding, this teaching refers to the latter eight mitzvot. The first two commandments, however, were heard directly from God without an intermediary. So, yeah, they would have their crowns that they could cast before Hashem on the glorious day. All right. So, I wanted to just kind of quickly get into um parsha naso and uh i'm gonna definitely do a part two but uh for right now 
I'm going to just touch on a couple of things because this parsha features the Sota, the Nazarite, the priestly blessing, a wonderful uh, illustration of Hashem speaking from above the ark. And, um, you know, it's just an interesting thing that Hashem goes in, goes from chapter 5 talking about confessions and goes right into the Sota. Because we know that everything is a mirror image, right? So, like, we're Hashem's bride. And then as men, you know, our wives are our brides. And so we go from having this bigger picture to like a smaller picture of a husband and a wife having a uh, something that would occur that would cause confession to need to be made. And uh, the second, when I do the second part uh, with the help of Hashem, it'll be about that whole interaction between the husband and wife. So I bring that up because there is this thing about confession and we're supposed to confess with our mouth after we believe in our heart. And it works that way too with our sins and we have to do it verbally. And even Yaakov gets into this in his writings, um, which is James normally. And uh, it says that we're to confess our sins to one another, you know, and so... That doesn't mean go into a booth that's dark with a grated window and talk about, Father, I have sinned. First of all, that person is not your father. And then second of all, like, you can talk to Hashem and it doesn't have to be dark and in this booth. So, anyway, that was probably a shot at somebody, but it wasn't intended to be. It was just for clarification. When we confess our sins, it, it's not to be this whole, like, super uh crazy exaggerated type uh atmosphere and environment you know if you're gonna walk in light don't go into darkness right i mean it's just kind of weird i don't know maybe it's just me anyway but i'm here in the midrash get you some and it says literally vidui which is the word confession okay confessing your sins vidui we do this Specifically at Yom Kippur, this is also part of our Mincha and, and the Tachnun, okay? So anytime you're doing a confession, it's a, it's a Vadui, okay? It's a weird word, I know, but uh, it sounds like it's almost Italian or something. But anyway, it says the mitzvah is to confess one's sins verbally. So if you don't think you can uphold the Torah, can you confess your sins before Hashem? Because if you can, you by default, you have done a mitzvah. So, Mazaltov. All right. So anyway, it says if a Yehudi transgressed a negative Torah mitzvah, which is one of the do not do's, or failed to fulfill a positive mitzvah, which is and do this right, and he regrets—that's a key word—and he regrets his deed, or he regrets the omission of. It is a mitzvah for him to do teshuva. That's why they say teshuva is the mitzvah. Because, I mean, you need to do that. So it says that teshuva is comprised of three parts. Go figure. Three parts. First, you need to sincere. You need to have sincere regret for your past misconduct. Okay? 
not a man i can't believe i did that whatever but like a man like that's not good like i don't need to be doing that i can't uh stand doing that all right you got to have some regret um then it says oral confession thereof you got to speak it out that's probably one of the most awkward things which is I'm not going to go back to that example again. But anyway, that's probably one of the most awkward things for, because uh, I mean, speaking prayers in general, you kind of feel like, well, Hashem can hear me. Like, why do I have to speak this out? But it's like, you speak it out because when you speak, there's life and death in the power of your tongue and you access energy for the mitzvot when you use your mouth. That's why Hashem spoke creation into being because he caused things to happen. And we have a semblance of that in our speech. And so Hashem empowers our words and they uh, they connect, you know. So we're speaking mouth to mouth with Hashem. And that, that power of that word comes out. And I mean, I don't have to get weird about it. But you know, when you say things, you can make somebody's day or you can break somebody's day with a word. You know, if you tell somebody, okay, I'm going to be... Uh, uh, specific here because this could be weird coming from a guy but if you tell your wife men that she looks very very nice today and that you really appreciate her and that she is a wonderful person you know and you go into a few examples that's incredible that does something to her physical makeup and to her spiritual being but if you say something horrible, like, girl, what's wrong with you? You need some help, like not in a good way or and just start going crazy and talking real bad. I mean, that changes her, you know, it changes the heart and the spirit. So words have amazing power. That's why Shem wants us to use them for prayers. Again, Yaakov goes into this too. Like you can't be saying blessings out of one part of your mouth and then turning around and just spewing out curses. You know, that's not appropriate. And that's weird. It's just like, I thought you were a pure person who followed Hashem and like you're an imitator of Hashem. If you're an imitator of Hashem, then that means Hashem is like, yeah, bless you, my people. And then just turns around and just starts being all defiling, like... I haven't seen Hashem do that. Last time I heard, Hashem was pure and holy. So his imitators have to be pure and holy. And yes, we do mess up. But I mean, really, what are we doing? Right? So anyway, it says that the next part is firm decision never to repeat it. Now, that's the kicker right there. Firm decision. Because that means you got to come up with a plan. Okay? If you ain't going to be a sinner... Okay, let's, uh, this is a harsh example, I know, everything's a harsh example, whatever, so, we gotta do it though, we gotta be violent, so, if it's harsh, it's harsh, but we gotta pick it up, right? So, eating kosher, that means you need to have a hexer, that means it's gotta be vegetarian or vegan, but other than that, I mean, you gotta uphold the kashrut torah mitzvot right so that means you're not going to go out and have a cheeseburger okay so the plan is i regret ever having a cheeseburger if you ever had one 
I confess to Hashem that I had a cheeseburger and I shouldn't have done that. And I do not desire to do that again. Firm decision. Next time I have a burger, make sure it's kosher, which would, by default, take away the cheese. And if you, for some reason, need cheese, which I don't know why, because it's kind of awkward, but to say this is that uh, there are non-dairy options if you really must have it, you know? So, I mean, don't feel like you're stuck, basically is what I'm saying. And pretty much, if you just grow with a shim, you can work through things. I mean, I used to love calamari, and then I was in denial for like ever, not for like a long time, but like a day or two when I found out about kush roots, and I was like, man, surely calamari have fins and or scales at least you know but it's got to have fins and scales which i was even off on that but you know it's terrible but you know i was just like you know what hashem i love you more than i love this food so i'm gonna do it and i'm not gonna eat this anymore and i'll be fine with fish sticks and i'll be fine with salmon get you some okay so that's just my struggle i'm just sharing my testimony that it's okay you can make a firm decision to never repeat it so with all this i would like to close with this final paragraph that says whoever says vidui before he dies has a person a portion in the world to come if he does not know how to recite vidui he is told to say let my death be an atonement for all my sins there is a special mitzvah to say vidui on yom kippur the day of the year that has the power to cleanse from sin. Well, Baruch Hashem, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vechayeh Olam Natabet Okeinu, Baruch Atah Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Amen. Amen. Shalom, this is part two of the Parsha Naso Get You Some, the GYS. So um, I've done part one talking about um, confession and being at a level of righteousness and accepting the Torah. So now I want to get into more concepts with the Parsha. So I will start with the Birkat HaTorah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakar banu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> this parsha is a big parsha. It's like 176 verses. The longest Torah portion in the Torah portion cycle or series and there's obviously a lot to learn and a lot to read but that's cool we just got out of Shavuot which I think is very fitting since you know we received the Torah anew so we have new enthusiasm new excitement new vigor and we're ready to do this so um I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and just go straight for the jugular and we're going to go straight to the Soto because this Torah portion, I mean, there's so many things in here, but um, yeah, we're just going to go to the Sota because 
that's just how we roll. First thing is, when it comes to the Sota, I want to go to the Midrash Get You Some. Because it's important to know about the Sota that this was something that was discontinued during the Second Temple era. And the incident we see with the gentleman bringing the woman caught in adultery before Mashiach Yeshua in the temple court, uh, they were trying to get a Sota going on but it was discontinued so there's already a flawed premise and then on top of that it wasn't the husband that brought her well i know if we go and read that account further it says that she doesn't have a husband so there's also that flaw to the whole thing so the people who brought this woman before mashiach saying you know what do we do the torah says we should stone her well Again, the Torah is not in their heart because you shouldn't be trying to kill people because the sages bring down that any Sanhedrin that killed a person within seven years, once every seven years, they would be considered bloodthirsty. So there's this whole idea behind preserving life. And there's this other thing called due process. So uh, just like the Chalitza ceremony, with the Leverite marriage that was discontinued um, and the Nazarite vow. Uh, we have an account of that in uh, Acts, but that wasn't apparently discontinued. So there was a purity to that uh, ritual. So, but there are definitely, oh, in the, the Sanhedrin themselves, they were disbanded about 40 years before the temple was destroyed. So, Really, no righteous judgments could have been brought down during the lifetime of Mashiach because his death and crucifixion, that was kind of on the tail end of the Sanhedrin being disbanded. So this all comes from the Midrash Get You Some on this week's Torah portion. So uh, those are important things to keep in the background. And, you know, one has to come from the Jewish frame of mind and context to be able to rightly divide the word because other than that you cannot possibly rightly divide the word because the only word to be divided at this point without a Jewish mind is the Brit Hadashah which was primarily Aramaic and Greek and at the same time had roots in the Tanakh in the Tehillim in the Torah in the prophets you know, and if you don't have an understanding of the foundation of any of that, then you can't possibly have a foundation in any other Brit Hadashah. So it's important to know that, which would give a whole lot more meaning to the different episodes that we see in the Basora. So, you know, just something to keep in the back of the mind. Now, with that being said about this woman that's brought forth you know, it's just completely out of process. So uh, I'm going to start in the Targum Onkelos, who I like to call OG Onkelos, and just read the opening section. And then I would like to go ahead and share the Sota ritual or trial, if you will, with you, uh, just so everyone knows about that. Because I remember when I learned about it for the first time, it blew my mind. Because when you read the 
written Torah, it seems like there's just a whole lot of unfairness going on with the wife. And well, then what about the husband if he is wrong, you know, and it's just kind of like, I want to know, like, is there any more to this? And it's just like, oh, you have no idea how beautiful this ritual is. And for Hashem to bring this out at the time that he does, it truly talks about, uh, it truly portrays, actually, I should say, our salvation. It truly portrays our relationship with Hashem. And what I've titled my notes is that we are a Sota. You know, like, the only difference is, is that we are actually guilty, you know, especially before we come before Hashem, namely through the way, the truth, and the life through his son, we truly were, you know, committing adultery and we were warned not to, but we've never heard it. So there's that um, because the trial is predicated off of the fact of the woman being warned not to be secluded with another man. And the thing is, is Hashem's voice went out and the beginning of creation, it also went out again with Abraham. It also went out again with Yosef. It also went out again with Moshe. I mean, Hashem's voice is going out all day long. And it's like, have we heard it? Are we hearing it? And are we taking action upon it? You know, and up until the time that we truly say, you know what, Hashem? I'm sorry. Hashem, make me new. I want to receive your Torah. I want to walk in the lifestyle of Mashiach Yeshua and draw near to you and cleave and attach myself to you among B'nai Israel. And it's like, not until we get to that point that we're under condemnation, we're under judgment, we're guilty, and our bellies are going to swell and our thighs are going to rupture. And that's not pretty, you know? So I love the fact that the Sota, because at the end of my previous Parshadrash for Naso on part one. I'm talking all about the Vadui, the confession. And that all is taking place in chapter five, right before it introduces the Sota. So, without further delay, I would like to take you to Bami Bar, chapter five, starting in verse 11. So it says. <clears throat> Adonai spoke with Moshe, saying, Speak with the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and commits a trespass against him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it be hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is defiled secretly, and there is no witness against her, and she is not coerced, but if a fit of jealousy comes up on him, he or and he is jealous over his wife who has defiled herself, or if a fit of jealousy comes up on him and he is jealous over his wife, although she has not defiled herself, the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Interesting note his commentary says that um this is like not a criminal court type justice. And so he doesn't take her to the Sanhedrin, but he takes her to the priest, which the priest is not a man of judgment. But then I thought, 
This sounds an awful lot like Mashiach saying, I did not come into the world to judge it, but to save it. So I was thinking about that with all this, and it's just kind of like, wow, like this is beautiful. So I'm going to flip back here and just kind of read through the Targumoji. Uh, so verse 11 talking about the word with and it says Maimonides view about the Sota sacrifice um, and then it brings up that there is more in verse 12 so let's just go ahead and go to that because uh, I'm going to delay doing Maimonides view for a second and go to over here because it talks about going astray and it says it uses the Hebrew word um, the Hebrew word is shatut the word shatut which is really close to the word for um, the name of that wood um, that's Mashiach uh, what in the world? Acacia. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Brukashem. Yes, acacia wood um, is also how you say shatut uh, in Ivrit. So anyway, so she gets this whole kind of thing about um, the wood here with like the acacia, the folly, because the uh, episode of Shatim, which we're going to see later in Bami Bar, about how the children of Israel fell into sexual immorality at this place with the Midianite and Moabite women, and um, that was not good. And so the acacia wood was meant to atone for that. So that's why the acacia is overlaid in gold. I mean, because here, okay, so Rabbi Griffin brings this down um, in Parashah Bamibar over the Shabbat and he talks about how the goal overlaying and the Mishkan represents the divine soul of man and so we see already with the construction of the Mishkan and the Shatim how that the divine soul covers that which is the folly of man you know, and so we have this element of him who knew no sin becoming sin to make atonement and reconciliation for us. So, I mean, that's right there, just kind of looking at that. And so what's happening with the Sota here, the woman suspected of adultery, is that she has this spirit of folly upon her. And um, is this my note here? There we go. Rachel Keith says, a man commits a transgression only if a spirit of folly, shatut, is how you say that, enters him. As it is stated, if any man's wife goes aside, Bami Bar 5.12. So that is Talmud Sota 3a, breaking down the fact of the attitude and the persona that would cause one to sin and that would cause us to be a sota, is this folly. It is this uh, shatut. And it's called also insanity. So OG over here says it also means to go astray. 
It says the woman strayed from the proper path, the path of chastity. Rashi homiletically sees the word tiste with the letter seen as if it is written with a sheen. Because the, the seen and the sheen are the same letter, it's just the vowel pointing change. So he says if you change that seen to a sheen, it reads shatut, which means foolishness. He therefore concludes that adultery is committed when foolishness enters the heart of the adulterer. So uh, the other thing is there's commentary on ish ish that man is written twice there. And it says in the OG over here. This law only applies when the woman has sexual relations with a man and not a minor or an animal. Okay, so that's kind of awkward. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and go to the Zohar. Because they have a wonderful drop on this. Zohar Naso 5, uh, 60. It says, if any man's wife goes aside, Bamibar 5, 12... He asks, what is the connection between the two? Meaning, why is the portion of Sota, literally meaning a wife suspected of adultery, next to the passages about trespassing, which is the whole section about needing to make teshuva and all that? He responds, it is written there, to do a trespass against Hashem, which is in verse 6. And it is written here by a sota and commit a trespass against him. Verse 12. They are the same subject. Therefore, they are next to each other. So, yeah, that's uh, that's that. I mean, pretty much calling Hashem an ish. There we go again. Ish, ish. And uh, yeah, that just happened. But, let's see. So I want to go ahead and go straight to the Midrash on this. This is from the Midrash, get you some, Parsha Naso. I love how they break this down. It's incredible to know. So it says, if a husband has warned his wife, do not seclude yourself with so-and-so. Notice it has to be a specific person. Like Hashem telling us, do not worship other gods, i.e. if any one that you worship is a false god, don't worship that. Don't seclude yourself with it. So therefore, if you do seclude yourself with it, if you do worship it, you put yourself on trial. Which is not something you want to do. So then, it says... And subsequently, two witnesses observed that she did seclude herself in privacy with another man for a period of time in which she could have become defiled. She becomes forbidden to her husband until the laws of the Sota are enacted. Okay, so the two witnesses have to also see the act after the husband has warned her. Okay, so... Again, I keep thinking about the woman that is brought before Mashiach, and it's just like, it's so wrong, it's so improper. 
And so Mashiach's response is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And it's just like, we can sit here all day and compare sin to sin, but ultimately, you know, it's not going to get anybody anywhere because the fact is, is that there is sin. We need to not be in the loop. So Mashiach is like, you know what? I'm getting out of this crazy loop because y'all are going completely in the wrong direction. So let's talk about being sinless and casting judgment. If you're sinless, then you are able to cast the judgment. So let's go ahead and have that happen right now. And one by one, they all leave. And then he turns around. And he's like, where are your accusers? And she's like, they've all gone. And then he goes, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. I mean, that's the ultimate level of forgiveness. She's completely caught in her sin. She's completely surrounded. I mean, there's nothing she can do. She's helpless. And God, who is merciful, says, listen, I would wish that this would not happen to you. So let's not let it happen again. And I forgive you. And if we think about the power that is of about how our souls should truly be changed and impacted by the words of Mashiach from that scene. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. I mean, you are just flat out wrong. You're caught. You're stripped. You're disgraced. I mean, nothing you can do about it. There is not even uh, a helper anywhere around. And you were completely just pawned and set up. Which, by the way, Hasatan sets us up for sins all the time. I mean, he's the agent of uh, distraction. Learned that today. He's got to share that with the co-workers. So, agent of distraction. He's also hindrance. And that's his job, you know. He is called the one who uh, hinders and um, gets us in places of influence, you know, to... Like, he tries to influence us, you know, to do certain things that our own desires are already trying to do. So it's like a compound transaction that happens. So we have to really avoid foolishness, negativity, which I'm pretty sure that's why Shaul wrote that whatever pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, you know, keep your mind focused on these things. Because if you fight and violently grab a hold of those things, there's no way that you can walk in folly and, and foolishness and, and get led astray. So, you know, keep your mind set on the Torah of Hashem, fixed and focused on the altar perfecter and finisher of your Amunah, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. You know, just keep keep that going. But anyway, so she's secluded. And uh, while we're on that subject, practical halakha here, if you're a guy or a girl for that matter, you don't want to be isolated and private with a member of the opposite sex. That includes car rides, you know, that includes, um, you know, public locations, which you would think if it's a public location, how can I be secluded with them? Well, no back rooms, 
no uh, windowless door rooms, uh, no windowless rooms. Really, you don't want to be just in a room far away from the common gathering, you know, isolated with anybody of the opposite sex, unless it's your family member or or your wife or, you know, something like that. You don't want to um, give off the appearance of evil. You don't want to um, give any opportunity for temptation or anything like that. So um, avoid being secluded with the opposite sex at all costs. So uh, it's kind of awkward because here in America, you know, we we don't really think about these things. We're just kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to a party. Everybody break up so we can carpool. All right, this person go with them. They go with them. Oh, I only can fit one person in my car. Sure, I'll go with you. No problem. And it's just kind of like, you might not want to do that. You know, where my car is broken down and got to call the tow truck and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, you want to try to be smart about things and uh, do the best you can. Uh, Obviously, there are some situations that are um, more emergency than others. So, yeah. Anyway, just practical halakha to keep in mind. Um, Yeah. So I guess we'll just go back to Midrash here. So I haven't even gotten out of the introduction. So then it says, oh, this is great. Because it says she becomes forbidden to her husband. Because one could say, you know, well, I know what this means if you go through this ritual. That pretty much you and I won't have another opportunity again. So, you know, we'll just take time now until, you know, your judgment day. Which is kind of like crude and horrible. But um, she becomes like she's Nita, basically. Like, no touching, no none of that. You can't even be alone with her, even. So she just becomes completely off limits to you. So, you know, I can't think of a reason why a guy would just completely put a lady in this situation or himself in this situation. But I know there is a lot more to it. So let's keep going. So then it says... Uh, what is the meaning of the word sota, which the Torah uses to describe a woman suspected of infidelity? Sota itself denotes fool. So here's where Rashi from the OG gets shatut because the word sota and shatut are derived from the same root word of folly. Okay. So then there's this whole thing. It says that she did not consider the results of her conduct sufficiently. She was swept away by passion or desire. This sounds awfully familiar. Something along the lines of led away by your desires and you ultimately sin, which gives birth to death. Yeah, I've heard that somewhere before. Then it says, had she been wise, her fear of Hashem would have prevailed over her Yetzirah. So wisdom equals the fear of Hashem that prevails over the Yetzirah. Now, where have I heard that? So I'm thinking 
And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem. And we have this meditation that we pray upon arising. And we're talking about focusing upon Hashem's word, upon his goodness, fearing him, grasping a hold of his wisdom, which is his Torah. And then we say, blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and to all eternity. So it's like we wake up with this radical praise of really just grabbing a hold of the word. And apparently doing that causes you to prevail over your Yetzirah. So if you're not Torah observant, you're missing quite a bit of power that will go along with your godliness because you're already putting yourself in this conduit of provision of protection of uh, victory I would say so the wisdom and the fear of Hashem you know so those who keep the precepts have a good understanding you know and we're made wise until salvation so I mean Hashem. So then it says she would have desisted either for fear of committing sin or for fear of punishment, which, you know, not like uh, fire and brimstone teaching, but you we should fear committing sin and we should fear punishment. I mean, that's healthy for us. I mean, think about when you're a child, like you're not going to go around breaking your mother's vase because you know you're going to get in trouble and then you should know that uh that's just wrong like who wants a kid that goes around just breaking stuff just because i mean that's rude you know so let's not be rude and let's not get in trouble i mean simplify it right so then it says instead she foolishly gratified a temporary desire despite her better sense that her act was sinful and would ultimately cause her suffering. Similarly, anyone who sins is a fool, for he allows his imagination, whim, or appetite to prevail over his better knowledge. And that's our really big battle right there. We gotta battle against our desires. And that sounds familiar. You would think that Paul said this, but guess who it is? It's Kepha. First Kepha chapter two. Dear friends, uh, this starting in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents to not give in to the desires of your old nature, which keep warring against you, but to live such good lives among the pagans, among the Gentiles. That even though they now speak against you as evildoers, they will, as a result of seeing your good actions, give glory to God on the day of his coming. And um, that's quite a bit of just download right there. I mean, first of all, to know that we're sojourners, to know that we're in exile, so... That's our status. And then it says that while we're in this status, 
to not give in to the desires of our old nature, like namely what caused us to come into exile, because that is what needs to get put away, you know, and going into exile is a form of atonement as well. So there's that. So we need to put away the desires of our old nature, which is doing the things that cause us to go into exile. And it says that this is a battle and this is a struggle because it keeps warring against us. You know, when you think about being in a war, a war is a series of battles. And I go back to Or HaChaim on Chaye Sarah when it was talking about the righteousness of Sarah and how awesome she was. It was because she battled day in and day out her Yetzirah. You know, and as B'nai Sarah, B'nai Rivka, B'nai Rachel, Leah, you know, like children of Israel, we have to war, you know, and we have people that are watching us because we're in exile, we're in their homeland, and people who celebrate Xmas, people who celebrate uh, V-Day, people who celebrate the Bunny Day, people who just celebrate all kinds of uh, Pumpkin Day and go find candy from Strangers Day, even though the other days of the year we say don't go to Strangers and find candy. Um, I mean, and dress up like Evil Creatures Day, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, in that realm is where we're supposed to live a Torah observant life. Because even those people can see light and when Mashiach returns they will give glory to God because they will know that God's people are truly pure and they're truly wise and they're understanding and they are the bearers of the light that is supposed to be shown to all men you know if we do our job which is shining the light to the nations being an example, I mean, this will happen. They will glorify God, and we that's what we want. We want Hashem to return to his creation through with the coming of Mashiach and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, maybe speedily in our days. We want him to be glorified, and so in order for that to happen, we have to fight against these silly desires. We have to just fight them, you know, and I think and I know, actually, that's why I always encourage the Avengers and the Teen Titans and the Zadaka League, like all these um, Shomer versions of these characters, these superheroes that we see on like movies and comic books. Like we're each made superheroes like Hashem puts something inside of us that will cause us to overcome. It's it's encoded into us and it's just it's got to be brought forth and revealed, you know, and so we use that together with other believers and we bring that forth and lift each other up. And I was talking about how Parsha Naso means to lift up, you know, and I've been talking about lifting up. And so that means not judging. That means encouraging. That means davening for, that means moving away from sin, turning our back on it. You know, just this verse here from Kepha, like it's just so crucial. And it's neat that Kepha wrote to all the tribes that are scattered. You know, we all belong to a tribe as believers in Hashem, followers of Mashiach. Like he called 12 for a reason. So got to find our tribe and we got to know our mission and know our purpose. 
The other thing I would like to bring down and point out is that if you look at uh, the end of First Kepha chapter two verse twelve, it says that um, that as a result of seeing your good actions, they will give glory to God on the day of His coming. The word for the day of His coming would be Yavo, and you would think Yavo means He shall come or He will come. But the amazing Chazan was just uh, violent one Arab Shabbat and taking a picture of his Siddur. Um, and he snapshotted us in the group and said over text message, Hey, uh, just want to let y'all know when we say uh, Yavo, that also means return. Because when you do the Birkat Hamazon, it says um, he will return a bearer of his sheaves. Uh, so yeah, he will, he will come or he will return is the same thing. So to which my point is, huyavo, shir hamalot, and boyavoy, which is the Mashiach song by uh, Benny Friedman. All of those songs are talking about the return of Mashiach. So, uh, for what that's worth, just want to point that out. So, until he returns, that means we need to be as violent as possible with bringing the good news and being a light. <clears throat> so, the other thing the Midrash gets you some says over here. It says the Jewish people observe ways of Kedusha and Zanut. They are unequal by other nations in the world. I mean, what other nations in the world do you know on a hundred degree day wearing a head covering and clothes that cover up their like all the way to their elbow and, you know, long, long pants, you know, and at least three or four layers of shirts because you got to wear your undershirt and you got to wear your katan and then you got to wear your overshirt and sometimes you wear a coat, you know, and it's just like, yeah, I don't see other people doing that. You know, one could argue maybe the Muslims do that, but I can argue not really. But I don't like arguing anyway. I just like stating facts. So there's really no one who, who does that. I mean, you can know a Jew um, just by looking at him. You know, check the hair. You know, as far as the guys, there's probably some peyote action or some beard action. And then um, maybe there's not. But then there's the keeper or some kind of head covering. And then there's the zit zit. And then there's the character and the demeanor in which they carry themselves. You know, there is the fact that. They are not visible in public on Shabbat, you know, namely the seventh day of the week. It's just like the world sometimes doesn't know that Jews exist because they never see them because the main time they're out and about in the world, the Jews are keeping Shabbat. <laughs> so unless you run across a synagogue or your neighbor is Jewish, that's the only time you're probably going to see a bunch of Jews, you know, because Shabbat is the time to just like partake. But anyway, Brugashim. So, uh, and the ladies. Gosta shout out to the ladies. 
that um you know covering up is beautiful that's awesome you know uh i know it's not easy because as a guy it's it's hard for us wearing lots of layers so wearing a tackle or a shaitel and you know the modesty in the dress brookasham so going hard in our uh, wardrobe is what i call that and i think that's amazing and i think it's so honoring to hashem that that's happening with his people because since you dress like that since we dress like that you know that's automatically like okay this person's different you know so awesome then it says a woman who conducts herself in a manner which causes her husband to suspect her of infidelity has turned away from the ways of the Jewish people. She has adopted the habits of the non-Jewish world. Thus she becomes a sota, a woman who has deviated from the path of Torah. Ooh. Uh one of the things it says that she's uh, basically brought to the temple, the Mishkan or the Mikdash with a rope specifically an Egyptian rope um, there's this whole thing about the journey and it really just reminds me of someone who's led uh, as a captive into captivity I'm trying to find the here we go Egyptian rope aspect it says after the Sota's garment has been ripped a rope whose flax came from the land of Mitzrayim was brought and wrapped around her to prevent her tattered garments from falling off. And it says, why an Egyptian rope? This was to hint that she imitated the immoral deeds of the land of Mitzrayim. So yeah, that's pretty intense. Uh, that that happens after the journey so that's during her actual trial where she's going through the disgrace of the uncovering and all that kind of stuff uh it says her hair was uncovered mita connected mita which is measure for measure because she had bared it in secret for the adulterer and now and now was uncovered in public because she secretly adorned it for him it was now disheveled in public. So that's all like, you ain't got to use your imagination too much for that. Basically everything that she did to satisfy her own desires was done to her in public. So not only uh, that, but you think about Mashiach says, what you do in secret will be revealed in public. And then you think about, um, I mean, we just read it even last week's Hofter portion, uh, Hosea about like how Israel, you know, went away and strayed after other gods and gave all of our fineries to them. And we were bared before them and things like that. And Hashem was like, I'm going to leave you in your disgrace, you know, and disown you and kind of thing. So this whole thing about the uh, the Sota has been kind of escalating and building, at least over the Haftarah, because you see this element of um, a foolish woman who is um, basically disowned. You know, when the woman becomes a Sota, she's forbidden by her husband. Like, he can't be with her anymore, you know? So we can kind of see that 
Yisrael is treated like a Sota. And I would just go ahead and say we're ourselves individually treated like a Sota when that happens, you know, and that um, fellowship and relationship is broken and it has to be rectified. So, but Baruch Hashem, that we get the opportunity to take words with us and return to Hashem and that we are, we have been empowered to not go astray. So, we need to rely on that uh, as we are filled with the Spirit and as we study the Torah of Hashem and cleave and attach to Him. So, let's see here. Due process, right? So it says that if the husband warned the wife, then we're going here. The two witnesses testify that she became a Sota. She brought suspicion on herself with a certain man against whom her husband warned her. Notice certain man. It can't just be any. Then it says the husband may either divorce her or else he must report the events to the local Beit Dean. If the witness's report was verified by the Beit Dean, but the woman insisted that she was pure and was willing to drink the water of the Sota, the judges referred the case to the great Sanhedrin. So, this is interesting. So, it says, the woman has to insist and be willing to drink the water, even though the witnesses verify the report. So, in other words, there's uh, an element here of uh, a cry for justice. So, instead of going to the Kohen, we go to the Great Sanhedrin. Which means... Why would they bring her to Mashiach? I'm still stuck on this woman that they wanted to stone. Namely, they wanted Mashiach to stone her. So why would they bring her to him? Because it's just kind of like... You're supposed to take the woman to the priest, but... Uh, obviously, she wasn't able to say any of these things. But anyway, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Says the judges of the Sanhedrin would try to convince the woman that she should confess her guilt, so the Sota test would not be performed unnecessarily. Wow. The court is trying to get her to confess. You know, that's what Hashem is always trying to do. He's trying to get us to confess. We don't need to keep trying to hide and keep trying to front. If we're wrong, we're wrong. So Hashem, may you give us the strength to do that. I mean, so they would take her aside and use all kinds of arguments and persuasions to make her admit the truth, cause her to refuse to drink. So pretty much any woman who drinks the bitter waters, she's been through many, many um, opportunities to not. There are other ways that we can do this, in other words. So I think that's beautiful. Just to know that it's not just she was suspected and now she's going to go drink this water and possibly die. Like, no, there's due process here. Then it says, we know they would tell her, for example, that the people lose their balance under the influence of wine, bad neighbors, or in a mood of levity. If this happened to you, confess it. Do not cause the great and holy name to be blotted out in preparation of the bitter waters with which the Sota is tested. 
there were greater ones than you who were seduced by Yitzrai Hara. Remember, a Zodic of Yehuda's caliber confessed in public that he was capable in the case of Tamar. So they're going to bring up the king of Israel and say even the king, Yehuda, the one from whom kings descend, had to publicly confess that he had improper relations. So people greater than you, basically, and you still don't want to confess. Then it says, um, Reuven confessed, uh, let's see, acknowledged guilt in the incident involving Bilha. Their confessions earned them eternal life. Wow. That's a whole new meaning to Romans 10, 9. Learn from these great people and admit your guilt. If the woman at that point confessed that she was defiled, she was told to leave her husband and the case was dismissed. Wow. So she could just get divorced and the case would be dropped. And it says, if she insisted she was pure, she was led to the eastern gate, the gate of Nicanor, which was the entrance gate at Azara, so that she was noticed by all who entered. It's like, take this woman to the main traffic area, so everybody knows that this woman is suspected. Then it says, before proceeding with the ritual, she was led back and forth all over the Temple Mount so that the procedure was artificially lengthened. So now the trip is reminiscent of Mashiach's trip to the crucifixion stake because it was like he was paraded around on this road to make it to the actual site that he was crucified. And the whole time, people are hurling insults at him punching him, beating him. And it's just kind of like, this person is on display for disgrace. So that's what happened to the Sota. She was on display for disgrace. The hope was that she would become worn out to the point of confessing. And again, think about Mashiach. He, he should have been worn out, but they got someone to carry his crucifixion stake for him. Namely, someone named Shimeon. Then it says, because, you know, the Shema, Shimeon, remember, the uh, root of Shimeon is Shema. So the Shema would be the one to come up and bear the crucifixion stake with him. So in order to make it through your challenges and your struggles, you have to be assisted by the Shema, which is the observance and acceptance of the mitzvot. And that you listen to him, that you hear Hashem's voice. Then it says, If she did not plead guilty, she was finally placed opposite the eastern gate, outside the Azara, and the ceremony of the Sota would begin. Okay. So, she was now on public display. The Azara was filled with women. It was a mitzvah for them to attend in order to take a warning from the end of the Sota. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad I'm not a woman and I will truly 
pray that Braca for real, because I could not imagine being a woman having to be commanded to go watch another woman be disgraced like that. But it's all for a public example. So, then it says the Cohen adjured her with an oath that contained a curse. He introduced the oath with the following speech. You are about to drink the bitter waters of the Sota, whose quality is miraculous. If you are pure, you will not be affected by this oath, and the waters will not injure you. However, if a strange man has defiled you, like if you've offered a strange fire, right? If a strange man has defiled you, whatever will uh, the water will cause your thigh and all your limbs to fall off. Your belly will swell and burst. The same will happen to the adulterer. So then it says, your name will become a byword in the mouth of people. They will curse one another with the words, may your end be like that of Mrs. So-and-so. And they will answer, if I tell a lie, may I perish like Mrs. So-and-so. Okay, so you become the butt end of all this um, terrible speech here. But you know, again, to the woman who was caught in adultery, the man was not brought, which I used to always think was a interesting thing. But you know, we can see just from the ritual here that no matter what, the adulterer would receive his payment as well for um, his immorality. You know, so if she dies, then he dies. But if he was not, if he was pure, she was pure, then it's all good. So, you know, it's kind of like, don't think just because you're not present that you're still not going to be punished. So then it says, the Sota affirmed the oath by responding twice, amen, amen. The double amen that I was never defiled by that particular person against whom my husband forewarned me. And amen that I was not defiled by any other man. So, all this is going on. Let's see here. So, the ritual. So, we know the the parchment. The Cohen would bring and write upon it the Torah context containing the... Or the Torah text containing the oath that he just made her swear. Which says, and the Cohen made the woman swear. And the Cohen said to the woman. And the Cohen said, and then the Amen, Amen. Then it says he would write this document like a Sefer Torah, but with erasable ink. And he would write Hashem's four letter name, which is never to be erased, by the way, to appear twice in the text. He would bring a new earthenware vessel, fill it with water from the from the shiny laver. Which, by the way, the shiny laver is all about the purity of the women who remain faithful to their husbands during the Egyptian exile. So, water from that shiny laver and sprinkle it, sprinkle in it, into it dust taken from the ground of the sanctuary, which is where man was created from. The dust of the Temple Mount is where man was created from. 
That's Piricated Rebbe Eliezer. Then it says, and a bitter herb to convert it into bitter waters. You know, this is the Pesach, the bitter herbs that we eat. We dip twice. Okay. Then um, finally, he erased the document in the water mixture until no trace of the letters remained. It says there, the order of these events are described as follows. Rambam. The Mishnah enumerates it differently. After having been pressured to confess her guilt and having refused, the woman was placed in the gate Nicanor, publicly disgraced by having garments ripped off of her and her hair disheveled. Then the Minka, which is the meal offering, was prepared or was prepared and placed in her hand. The bitter water was prepared in a bowl. And she was adjured. The scroll was written. And then the holy name erased. So food is transformed into a sacrifice. So then all of this is going on. And she would drink the water. So the Midrash closes with saying... It is not always possible to restore harmony between other couples. However, a married couple can and must strive for shalom in their own home. So this whole thing about the Sota is to remove one from their folly, to remove one from straying from the path. And we're it's a striving for peace. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? So... With everything that I've looked at on this Torah portion, it's all about, you know, being caught in trespass, but turning away from it. And interestingly enough, with Naso's Gematria being 351, 3 plus 1 plus 5 equals 9. And when it comes to the number 9, the meaning of it is turning. It's making a confession. Literally, from the Jewish wisdom and the numbers, it says that nine is the act of turning towards to ensure that one finally arrives at the end point. Uh, it says the word nine, tisha, tav, shin, ayin, is derived from the root sha'a, which means turning or facing. Like, you know, the priestly blessing, may Hashem turn his face towards you, right? Then it says that the most famous application of this concept of turning is found in the promise of Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, or Hasidism. When nine Jews are waiting to form a minion, a tenth man will soon appear. Here too, nine is shown to be a consistent state of flux to turn towards the state of completion symbolized by the number 10 and there's this whole aspect of healing relationships it says a breakdown in their intimate relationship marks a move away from 10 which also marks a state of holiness to move or uh, not to the nine characteristics in a damaged relationship with instant or 
nine characteristics in a damaged relationship with any resulting offspring bearing a spiritual blemish. Consequently, the marital harmony is sullied and the relationship between husband and wife disintegrates. So when you break down from the holiness and go off the path, you move into this nine characteristics of a damaged relationship. And so you have to turn away from that and go back to 10, like waiting the man. All right, so I'm going to do a part three to kind of wrap this up. So Todarabah and uh, be back after this. All right, Shalom. This is part three of the Naso GYS. I was in the middle of talking about the number nine and how it represents the concept of turning, namely turning back to holiness. And so it finishes here in the Jewish wisdom on the numbers. says, where there is a symbolic breakdown of the wholeness of ten that fragments into nine, the response must be to reverse it by turning it once again towards ten man must re- must again identify with the theme of turning towards that exists within the number nine and must transfer individual separate parts into the communal integrated whole of ten marital disharmony characterized by nine characteristics or the loss of the Shekinah that is not present at nine handbreadths from the ground must be elevated to the level of ten. This is man's role in the world. His annual review of accountability is set for every Rosh Hashanah on the date of man's creation. Man must maintain his obligation to partner with Hashem and to turn creation towards its perfection. This means man must reverse the damage in the temple's destruction on Tishba Av and the loss of the Shekinah, which led to the numeric regression from 10 to 9. His agenda must be to view time, like the number 9, as the process of turning towards the glorious future. So... It's all about making teshuva. It's all about returning to Hashem. You know, so this is why Mashiach says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. So a couple of things here. We know that uh, the offering, the minka that she's given to offer the sota here. Slika is Bami Bar 5.15. And it says that she has a tenth ephah which is an omer of barley, which, by the way, we counted the omer for 49 days plus one to get to Shavuot. And so for seven weeks, we were doing the Sota trial. We were getting purified and we were talking about removing all blemishes. We were confessing before Hashem all of our blemishes and offering this offering up. And this offering, that's a tenth ephah of barley, it says she acted like an animal, therefore her offering is animal feed. So to 14b, it says every Jew, whether righteous or wicked, has two souls. One soul clothes itself in the person's blood to animate the body. 
This is the source of egocentric desires and drives. And then it says, and the second soul is literally a part of God. And it is the source of a person striving to unite with God. The body is called a small city. As two kings wage war over a city, each wishing to capture it and rule over it, that is to say, to govern its inhabitants according to his will, so that they obey him and all that he decrees them. So do the two souls, godly soul and the vitalizing animal soul, which, by the way, the animal soul derives from the klepa, the uh, forces that are uh they siphon off holiness so they're like uh impure forces it says they wage war against each other yes it truly says they wage war against each other over the body and all its organs and limbs now if that sounds familiar that's because that's um romans so let's see here Stand by. Wasn't planning on sharing this verse, but I definitely want to now. So, uh, this is Romans 6. Don't hear that quoted too much. But it says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Now, connect that back to Yochanan where he says that Let's see here. Uh, Noah's chapter 1. Okay, it's verse 17. There we go. For the law was given through Moshe, but grace and truth came through Mashiach Yeshua. So, if you think about not being under the law, but being under grace, you're under that which the law came from. Okay? So, if you think about... If you're not under law, but you're under grace, you're under that which the law came from. Okay, that's super important that you get that. Because grace in Hebrew is chen, and chen is the gematria of 58. 5 plus 8 is 13. 13 is achad. 13 is ahava. So 13 is one and 13 is love. So literally you're under the love of God, which he gave his mitzvot from. Because Hashem so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And so we know that he gave us the Torah because he loves us, because he wanted to shower his grace upon us so that we wouldn't be under condemnation. So we wouldn't have to undergo judgment because we would know what sin is. And we will be filled with Hashem as we walk in his Torah, because the Torah itself is the name of Hashem.
trying to see if that brought they I think they got brought down over here um and the Zohar Stand by. I do know they're talking about the divine name over here uh, in 64. Let's see what 64. Okay. The priest writes the holy name once, the regular way, which is Yod and Hay with Vav and Hay, and then backwards with Hay and Vav, Hay and Yod. The letters which were blotted in the water were sketched by the uppermost lights in four manners judgment with judgment mercy with mercy mercy with judgment and judgment with mercy if she's cleared the letters remain and the letters of judgment are gone if she is guilty the letters of mercy are gone and the letters of judgment remain and her sentence is carried out okay that's not it Okay, it's not in this week's chapter, but um, there's this whole section. I'd have to find it, but the Torah is the name of Hashem, and the Torah is a, a different arrangements of the name of Hashem. So uh, I will have to get that and share that at a later time. But again, I just want to go back to this concept of Romans chapter 6 and Yochanan chapter 1, how they overlay so beautifully to let us know that the Torah that Hashem gave us is really his grace, you know, so that we would not be under the law that would come forth from violating the Torah. Because we wouldn't violate the Torah if we truly had the love of God. That's why Mashiach himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will not cast off the yoke of the kingdom. So, anyway... Just wanted to share that. Um, and the Tanya is where I got the illustration about the body being a small city and the waging of the war. And how it's the godly soul versus the animal soul. And the last thing I want to share here is Eshet Kayil. And I never thought about this applying to a man, but it, it does. It applies to us too because have to remember that just like a man has his wife you know we're Hashem's bride you know so the opposite of a sota would be an Eshkayil a woman of valor you know one who walks the path so I'm just going to kind of fly through this pun intended because this is a whole midrash that breaks down uh, the Eshkayil blessing that is recited over the women so it says Many women, many women have done well. Mishlei thirty-one twenty-nine. Adam, the first man, was commanded six commandments. Noach was additionally commanded commanded about not eating a limb from a live animal. Abraham was added one about circumcision. Yitzhak was educated with these eight commandments. Yaakov was additionally commanded, but not eating the sciatic nerve. Yehuda about Leverite marriage, 
the people of Israel about 248 positive mitzvot, corresponding to the 248 limbs in a man. Each and every limb says to man, I plead of you to do this commandment with me. Like I want to be an instrument of righteousness. And the 365 negative commandments corresponding to the 365 days of the solar year. And each and every day says to man, I plead of you, do not, or I plead of you not to do this sin on me. Grace is false. Beauty is vain. Mishle 3130. The grace of Noach was false. As it states, Bereshit 6, 8. But Noach found grace in the eyes of Hashem. Rabbi Levi said, only in his generation did he find grace. Beauty is vain. Vain was the beauty of Adam, the first man. Rabbi Shimeon ben Manasseh said, the ball of Adam, the first man's heel would dim the sun and do not wonder it is customary in the world that when a man makes two silver vessels one for himself and one for his household which does he make nicer is it not his so too adam the first man was created to serve in front of hakadosh baruku and the sun was created to make light for the other creatures and if the ball of his heel was such, the contour of his face was all the more so. Keep going here. She is like a merchant's ships. This is Raquel, our mother, who was embarrassed about her lack of children every day. Therefore, she merited to come from her, merited, and a son came from her who was similar to a ship that is filled with all the good found in the world. So was it with Yosef that the whole world survived from the merit and from his merit and he supported the world in the years of famine. That literally just said the world survived in the merit of Yosef. And he supported the world. Okay. That's, that's just how you're going to do it, huh? Let's see here. Um, where is our good old Samson at? I think it talks about him somewhere over here. There we go. It says, Her husband is known in the gates. This is Michal, who saved David from death. She makes cloth and sells it. This is the mother of Shimshon, that through him Yisrael was saved. Strength and splendor are her clothing, and she laughs at the last day. This is Elisheva, the daughter of Abinadab, who saw four joyful events in one day. Her brother become a prince, which uh, should have been Nakshon. Her husband, high priest, 
and the brother of her husband, a king, and her two children, young priests. She opens her mouth with wisdom. This is the wise woman who said, Second Shamuel 2016, listen, listen, please tell Yoav, come over here and I will speak to you, who saved the city by her wisdom. And this was Sarak, the daughter of Asher. So yeah, I mean, there's this whole, it keeps going, but it ends with this. It says, it is stated, give her the fruit of her hand and let her works praise her in the gates. Be strong in ethical behavior. Keep the Torah and be rescued from the Yetzirah. To which is the point you know, of our turning that we have to choose to do this. We have to choose to be a woman of valor. We have to choose to keep the mitzvot and to have a good ethical behavior to fight against the Yetzirah. Out of all the things that we could fight in this world, the one thing we don't want to seem to fight against is our own Yetzirah. And it's like, how do you have energy to fight other people if you're not fighting your Yetzirah? You know, so in other words, this energy that's being used to fight each other, let's use it to fight our Yetzirah and then let's see what the other circumstances are like. So, which brings me to the closing point of chapter 7, verse 89. <laughs> When Moshe would enter the sanctuary to speak with Hashem, he would hear the voice speaking to him from above the cover of the Ark of Testimony. So, in the first part of the Parsha, get you some, I talked about the voice of Hashem. And it's so beautiful and fitting that we get to end with the voice of Hashem. And namely, the voice that was on Sinai, we now find, is now the voice that's on top of the ark. It says, one might think that this, the fact that Moshe heard the voice of God, was because the voice was low. So the verse stresses that the voice, that this voice was the same voice that spoke to him at Sinai. But when it reached the doorway, it stopped and did not extend outside the sanctuary. That's Rashi. So, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says a basic tenet of the Jewish faith is that it was granted the freedom to choose between good and evil, between adherence to the divinely oriented mission in life and rebellion against or even denial of the Creator. As Maimonides writes, were God to decree that a person be righteous or wicked, or if there would exist something in the essence of a person's nature which would compel him towards a specific path, a specific conviction, a specific character trait, or a specific deed, how could God command us through the prophets, do this and don't do that? What place would the entire Torah have? And by what measure of justice would God punish the wicked and reward the righteous? So in other words, if it wasn't for this free 
choice, this freedom that Hashem gave us. For freedom, Hashem set us free. Galatians 5.1 If it wasn't for that, then how could any of these things be brought down? You know, like if we weren't free, then how could we receive the Torah? Because at that point, we wouldn't be free and we wouldn't need anything to tell us what to do because we'd be programmed. We'd know what to do. So the fact that we're given the opportunity to observe the Torah is a point of freedom. A point of freedom to choose because Hashem's voice is being spoken very, very loudly. But the only people who get to hear it are those who choose to walk in His ways. So that's what I say, but the Lubavitch Rebbe over here he also says this. He says the volume was not lowered. The voice is no less infinite and omnipotent than it was than it was at Sinai. One who enters the sanctuary hears a voice that penetrates and permeates all, a voice that knows no bounds or equivocations. But one can choose to remain outside the domain of Torah, to deny himself the knowledge and the way of life in which God makes himself heard. See, that's the important thing. Like, the reason why we're observing is because we desire to hear Hashem's voice. And um, if we're not walking with Hashem, we won't be able to hear his voice. Then it says, one can choose to remain outside in the field of God's self-imposed silence. It is this choice that creates the challenge of life, making our every mortal victory a true and significant achievement. So, I mean, it's great for us to have freedom of choice. And I would like to add the juxtaposition of those who were banished outside the camp in this week's Torah portion for trespassing Hashem is placed next to the Sota. Because one of the ways we enter back into relationship and communion with Hashem from being outside is undergoing the Sota ritual. You know, this even happened at Masa and Meribah. Um, someone was bringing this down. Is it? Let's see. Mm hmm. Uh, oh yeah, it's a Zohar. I was like, someone said this. All right, so check this out. It is the same with Israel. This is Zohar five uh, with um, Naso section eighty six. It is the same with Israel when they desecrate the Torah. Hakadosh Baruch Hu sends them into exile among the children of Esau and the children of Ishmael under their servitude, whose rank is the rank of a dog and a snake. And it says they are punished there. Through them, they will become cleared and purified and refined like sil like the refinement of silver and the trying of gold. This is what is said and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, Zechariah 13.9, and this would hold true about them. Through, or though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So 
So it's like that exile, which brings us close, right? So then it says that... Let's see. Bitter waters, dust. There we go. All right, so this is section 68, same chapter. You may see that it was appropriate for the wives of Israel to have been tested because of the suspicion of the Egyptians. But why were the men of Israel tested? He responds, it is because they too had been te had to be tested to see if they were defiled with the wives of the Egyptians. So here's our precedent for the men to go undergo the Sota ritual. And so it says that uh, that would be because we want to make sure that we haven't been defiled by the wives of the Egyptians. The women of Israel were not defiled with the Egyptians. All the years they resided among them, both men and women came out innocent. Therefore, the seed of Israel was pronounced holy and worthy. Only then did the name of Hakadosh Baruchu dwell among them. Hence, surely it is through waters there he made them a statute and an ordinance where he tested them. Here too the priest tested the woman with water and the holy name. So this all happened at the waters of Mara, by the way. It says he brought them to the place to test them. That testing was to test the purity. So the tree of life, it says that the tree refers to the holy name that the priest used to write in order to test the wives of Israel. Therefore, he made for them or there he made a statute for them in an ordinance and there he tested them. So the holy name was written on this stick and it was thrown into the water. And that was what sweetened the waters, which is what proved that they were pure. So may we all turn to Hashem and leave impurity and walk in his ways. And we have to make sure that we're doing that with sincere confession and that we truly walk in his way, his truth, and his life and imitate Messiah. So may we be transformed from the illumination. May we be women of valor. May we be men of valor. May we walk like a nation set apart as we're in this world, but not of it. Blessings over your week. Blessings over your Shabbat. I uh, hope you had a wonderful Shabbat. And as we move into this new season, and even though uh, it's a little bit away, uh, we're still preparing for it now with Teshuva, um, the three weeks from the 17th of Tammuz to Tisha B'Av. And we want to make that time uh, a turn from the morning and a turn from what caused it and caused that 10 basically turning from 9 to 10 making that relationship renewed and restored like may we strive for holiness and righteousness as we move into that to turn these days of mourning into days of rejoicing amen so may the temple be rebuilt may mashiach come speedily and soon in our days 
And what do we know? What do we know? Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vekaye Olam Natabetokenu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen